What messages do we receive as children that might be adversely affecting us? And how do we receive those messages? And how can we prevent ourselves from passing those negative messages on to our children? Welcome to episode 37 of the Be Yourself and Love It podcast with me, Anthony Samaroff. My guest today is Robert Najemi from the Centre for Holistic Harmony in Athens, Greece. He is a trainer of life coaches from all over the world and an author of over 30 books on subjects relating to helping people achieve happier and more harmonious lives. He lives in Athens in Greece, where he's the director of the Centre for Harmonious Living, which he founded in 1976, and also has a self-help YouTube channel that covers many topics, including how to raise healthy and happy children, and how to resolve conflicts in the family. Hello, Robert. Hi. Hi, Anthony. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. It's good okay. to be on the show. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Would you like to tell us a little something about how you came to be doing the work that you're doing? Well, uh, I actually I'm trained to be a chemical engineer, and I worked for a few years as a chemical engineer. But then I found that uh, that wasn't my life calling. And then I began to search for various uh, ways for people to create harmony and happiness in their lives. And it took me on a trip through many uh, modalities, many philosophies, forms of psychology. Um, and here I am today. I, I started out that, that path when I was about 24. Now I am 68. Uh, and so I'm sharing with people here in Greece and also through the Internet all over the world what I have learned about creating uh, inner harmony, health, happiness, uh, loving relationships. And now you're teaching the teachers as well. Yes, I'm teaching life coaches to help other people. That's fantastic. Now, I was listening to some of your material on YouTube and I was very impressed. From what I could glean, if I could summarize your philosophy on parenting, it sounded something like seeds do not need to learn how to grow. Can you explain a bit about what you mean by that? Yeah, I believe that each child is actually a soul that knows why it's becoming born, why it's incarnating, and knows what it needs to become. And just as every seed knows what it needs to become, you can't train a tomato seed to become a corn or a grape. Uh, and the same thing with human beings. I believe that we need to be there for them to just nourish them, uh, in, encourage them to become aware of their inner guidance, and then help them to manifest what their inner guidance is guiding them to do. Uh, so just as any plant that would need water and air and light and freedom to grow, uh, I think this is the way we need to bring up our children, with less telling them what to do and asking them what they feel from inside, is their life purpose. So what would constitute a healthy environment for that seed which we call a child to grow in? Well, I think, I think the most uh, important aspect of that environment is truthful communication. That is, um, for parents, first of all, to recognize the soul in their child, that this is a divine being 
It's not just a child without any knowledge. There is knowledge within that being. It's not, it's not an empty container that we need to fill with knowledge. And to communicate honestly with the child and respectively, and in order to do that, someone would need to learn more effective communication and the I message and active listening. So it's rather than telling the child that they're no good or shouting at them, to explain our own fears, to explain our own needs. Just a minute, Anthony. Explain what we are feeling and why we feel that it's important for the child to do one thing or another thing, the, the dangers that we perceive in their, their desired behavior, and not just to tell them that they're wrong or that they have to do what we tell them to do, but to explain the thought process behind it and the emotions behind that. So you'd want the child to understand why they're being advised to take a particular course of action rather than to do it just out of obedience to you. Yes, and even if in the end we have to say, okay, look, you may not agree, but you're going to have to do what I, I'm asking you to do, at least the child feels respected that we have taken the time and the energy to explain why we feel that is important. And I think this respect plays a large role. You did a video series on the main messages that children receive from their parents and from their environment. And that was so fantastic. I am going to include the whole thing in this podcast. What are some of the basic messages which a child receives and which are programmed into his subconscious mind? One basic message is that you are weak and vulnerable. This message is received in various ways. One basic way is by the worrying of the parents. When a parent worries, fears for his child, he gives a very concrete message to the child that you are in danger. That's the only message that the child can receive. When I fear, when I worry, when I have anxiety about my child, it means I doubt he is safe. I, feel, I give him the message, you are in danger, there is danger for you, and I doubt your ability to cope with that danger. That's the message, a very distinct message. Now, when we're continually worrying about the health of the child, then we give them a very direct message, your, your health is in danger. Your body is not resistant to illness. You have to protect yourself from illness by wearing a lot of clothing or watching uh, various aspects of your life. This brings to attention uh, some recent employment of another way of thinking in Japan and also in, uh, in America where young children spend the whole winter without wearing anything more than a t-shirt or just with no shirt whatsoever and play in the snow and in fact on CNN it was showed a few weeks ago shown a few weeks ago and these children never get ill or get ill much less frequently than the children that are well dressed I mean it was an incredible image to see these children playing in the snow with just shorts no shirt no uh, no long pants and other children in the next lot bundled up in about three or four sweaters and, and uh, jackets. 
And what is the message that that child who is not wearing clothing getting? That I have strength, that there is a vitality, that there is a power within my body, both a heat power, but also a power against illness, and that I do not need external forms of protection from the illness. So the one very direct message we get from our parents and from the whole social system as children is that we are vulnerable. We are weak and vulnerable, especially to illness. And if we had a parent who was ill frequently, then this message is uh, increased, it's strengthened. And if we were ill frequently, then again, this message is intensified. Also, that we are vulnerable uh, from people, that we can be hurt by people, that we should not trust people, we should not speak uh, to strangers. And so an, an inherent feeling of distrust is created. And a belief that people are evil and want to harm me is programmed into the subconscious mind. That uh, I will be hurt emotionally from people. There's, to be hurt physically is one thing, but then to be hurt emotionally is another. And I'm programmed in that way when I see my parents hurting each other when I see my parents hurt by others, or hurting others, or my parents hurting myself, or myself hurt by other brothers or sisters, or uncles or aunts or grandparents. So I'm programmed to believe that I am vulnerable to emotional pain from other persons. And so I begin as a small child to develop defense systems, to begin to create a shell an emotional shell around myself. Now, there are a wide variety. It's really amazing working with people and seeing the, the variety of defense mechanisms that people can create in their lives to protect themselves. Uh, but two basic categories of defense system are closing in. We could call this the turtle complex. Huh? Just hiding in the shell, which means that uh, they create a shell around themselves and have very little real emotional contact with people. They may have a lot of friends and a lot of social contact, interaction, but no real emotional contact with persons. And the second defense mechanism is to become aggressive and have people fear you so that they do not dare to approach you or to come and uh, to confront you. So the one way is hiding. These are two basic mechanisms of nature itself, of hiding, of closing in, or of creating a, an antagonistic, an offensive energy field around ourselves by being somewhat aggressive, which causes people to stay away. The second basic message which we receive in our childhood years is that we do not know. We do not know what is best for us. We are not intelligent enough. We don't have the knowledge within ourselves to live our lives. This is uh, programmed into us when we are told that we don't know what to eat or how much to eat or when to eat. When our parents force upon us certain amounts of food or types of food or at certain times of the day, although there is an inner guiding voice, which we can call an apostat, as in thermostat and apostat, which uh, is completely destroyed because we're never allowed to listen to it. 
as a child, and so we begin to doubt and lose contact with that. But then we realize, we're told, we're programmed, that we don't know how to dress, we don't know how to study, we don't know when to study or how much to study, we don't know how to play or when to play, which friends we should have, and eventually what kind of profession we should do in our lives or who we should marry. Uh, all of these things our parents consider or others consider that they know this better than we do. And so the, the inner programming is to cut off all contact with the inner guiding voice, which is in every being. It's natural. That is when uh, a kernel of corn comes into life, it comes complete with the blueprints of what it can become and what it must become. It could never become a watermelon or, a, or an apple tree. It will definitely become a cornstalk. And every being in creation has this inner blueprint. There's no being which does not have it. Only man becomes deprogrammed by society and loses contact with the basic inner voice which says what this being was born to become and to do with its life. And then we start seeking for the rest of our lives for some external answer looking for someone to tell us how we must live our lives to be healthy, to be happy, to be fulfilled. And we put people in this position because we have lost our own assurance of our own selves and that assurance which would allow us to follow our way of life independently as to whether it coincides with society's concepts or not, belief system or not. And we seek for parent images in people. It could be our spouse, it could be a friend, it could be an employer, it could be a teacher, it could be anyone. And we are afraid of doing something which is against their beliefs, their wishes. Then we become to feel suppressed by them. And we get in this dual relationship. We want them to tell us what to do. And we feel resentment because they're telling us what to do and because they're suppressing us and not allowing us to live our lives as we want. But we are giving them that power by needing their approval and needing them to verify to us what we're not sure about within ourselves. And this all happens because as children we are not programmed to believe in that inner voice which will guide us for the rest of our lives. And then it is here we are not capable not capable of what? Of handling responsibilities. Uh, when a parent comes and says, let me do that for you. Or, let me show you how it's done. Uh, or you're a lazy bum and you'll never do anything with your life and you'll never succeed and no one will ever want you for a husband or for a wife. Or no one will ever hire you. You'll never be able to keep a job since you're not responsible. And these kinds of messages... We are programmed into believing that we are not capable of succeeding at something. That succeeding at something could be a relationship, it could be a job, uh, it could be social activities. Uh, and so we are programmed into failure. My mind is formed by my thoughts and my life is formed by my mind. So my thoughts eventually create my life. 
So if I believe I'm incapable, I'll create failure. If I believe I will be rejected, I will create rejection. And of course the opposite. If I believe positive things, I'll create a positive life. Another very important message given to a child is about his self-worth. Whether he's good, whether he's evil, whether he's worthy of love and acceptance and respect. Uh, because our parents and teachers did not have the necessary self-love and self-acceptance and self-confidence, it was difficult for them to give that to us. And so we take two basic messages. One message is, you are not worthy no matter what you do. For example, especially in, in Mediterranean and Eastern countries, because you're a woman. Whatever you do, you will never be able to be as worthy as a man. There's nothing you can possibly do. It's, it's a fact of life. It's a programming. It's a belief which exists. Or because you're not beautiful. Or because you're not intelligent. Or because I just didn't want to have a child at this time. And you're guilty for the pain that I'm going through. So there, one message is you're just not worthy. You're, just, you're never going to be worth being loved and accepted. The other message is that you are worthy but with conditions. If you fulfill certain conditions. Um, if, you're, if you're beautiful or if you're intelligent or if you're successful or if you're better than others at something in particular and in intelligence or in grades or in sports or in business if you're perfect if you don't make any mistakes if you always do what I ask if you never say no to anyone and there's two ways in which we get this message we can get this message by negative uh, responses, but also by positive affirmation. When that positive affirmation has to do with a specific characteristic. I have seen many people in the seminars, for example, women who have become very attached to their appearance and can spend hours each day caring for their appearance or hundreds of dollars each month buying clothing for their appearance because as children they were very cute children and constantly heard oh how beautiful a child how wonderful a child and they associated then their self-worth with that and if I'm not beautiful then I won't they won't love me they will love me as long as I'm beautiful or a child who was intelligent got good grades and constantly heard how how much he was loved because because he was so successful and then he creates the impression of himself that if I am not continuously perfect in my grades, or better than others, then they will not love me. And I've seen children commit suicide. Not because they were rejected by their parents, but because they were very good in school, and they just couldn't stand the pressure of staying that way, and the fear that they might not be able to do it. So also positive affirmation, as well as negative rejection can create this kind of programming when we when the child gets the message that we love him according to certain conditions 
that he is acceptable and esteemed and lovable according to certain specific conditions. And each child uh, interprets that in a different way. The result of that is, with everything that we do, we try to do it in order to get the affirmation of persons around us. Uh, our appearance, our professional success, our money, our house, the condition of our house, our spouse, our children, all of that we want to keep in a state so that when other people see it, they will say, that person is worthy. I respect that person. I accept that person. And even when we go into the spiritual, the process of spiritual growth, we play the same game uh, by believing that, well, if we meditate so many hours or if we read a number of books or if we have so many teachers or if we've done so many seminars, we will be more acceptable than those who do not. It's very difficult to stop playing this game. It's played in every aspect of life. It is the game of self-worth, the game of self affirmation, all because a certain amount of doubt was created and we put everyone then in the position of our teacher, of our parents, and are seeking their approval. And this is very exhausting in our lives. Another message which uh, is passed into the mind of the child is that you are to blame for my reality. It is, you make me sick, uh, I'm ill because of you, I'm unhappy because of you, I'm angry because of you. You are to blame for my anger, for my hurt, for my pain, for my illness, and even some parents, for my death. And the children believe it. And they grow up ha having a feeling of guilt for the parents' death, or for the parents' unhappiness, and sometimes even for the parents' divorce. And sometimes when parents want a divorce and they don't get it, you're responsible for the fact that I had to stay with your father so many years. And now you owe me. Because I didn't want to stay. You see? And all of these messages are passed into the mind of the child. And he uh, gradually develops a sense of responsibility for the reality of other persons. Many times, as we do analysis in the self-knowledge seminar, we, we, we find that the root of a very, very basic problem is this belief. that is, we, we cannot be happy when other people are not well, and we get into a vicious circle with them, a negative relationship with them, trying to force them to be well, force them to be happy, because we cannot relax, because we are responsible in our mind, for their reality and for their happiness. A woman is programmed that she's responsible for her husband's satisfaction and happiness. And if he's not happy, then she's not a good wife. And so she cannot stand seeing him not happy. She cannot give him the space and allow him to take the responsibility for his happiness. A parent cannot see his child unhappy because I am the creator of that child. I am the creator of his reality and tries to force the child to do what the parent believes the child must do to become happy, which may be true, may be correct, and may not be correct. But this need for you to be happy in order for me to be at peace with myself is an egotistical need. It's not only love. There may be love there also, 
probably is love there also. But there is also need. I, I cannot be at peace because I am a failure in, in my responsibility to create your happiness or your health or your success. This is exactly the belief which causes many parents to destroy their relationship with their children in adolescence. Because in adolescence, the child very necessarily is going to go through a period of disturbance and a period of trying to find his own ego, his own personality. And if the, child, the parent can't dissociate himself from the sense of responsibility for the creation of the reality of that soul, then he's going to come in conflict with that soul and not allow the soul to go through the various stages he has to go through in order to find himself. So it's a, it's a belief which even though on one hand seems to be something related to love, that is, I feel, I care very much for the other person, in reality, it's actually egotistical. It's based on the belief that I can create the reality of the other person. Let's distinguish between I can try as much as possible to help the other person to be well, and I am responsible for the creation of his reality. As we say in English, you can bring a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. You can try to help someone, but you cannot create his reality. At least, that's my belief. I've been trying 25 years to find ways to create people's realities, because I want to see people happy. In that programming, however, we are programmed to the other side of the coin. What's the other, si other side of the coin? They are responsible for my reality. And because a parent is programmed in that way, and he believes he is responsible for my grades, he is responsible for my appearance, he is responsible for my health, then I grow up believing that, that other people are responsible for what I feel. Other people are to blame for, for my problems, and that other, I need other people to create my happiness, my success, my security which means that I don't take responsibility for my own life. I'm waiting for others to solve my problems, and I will try all my life to change the others so that I can feel well, rather than to change myself and to change the beliefs which are preventing me from being well. So these two beliefs are two sides of the same coin and create a lot of conflict in relationships and a lot of unhappiness. That I am responsible for the reality of others and others are responsible for my reality. Others can help us, and we can help others. And that's a very important thing, and I believe in helping. But we cannot take on the responsibility for the results, and neither can others be responsible for our results. So it's an important programming. When we, are, we believe that we're responsible for others, we feel uh, failure, we feel self-rejection, we feel guilt when they're not well. When we believe that others are responsible for our reality, we feel bitterness, we feel injustice, we feel victimized, we feel anger, we feel hurt, we feel hate, because they are preventing us from being the way we want. What are some of those messages and how do children receive those messages? Well, the children receive the messages through the words of the parents and the behavior of the parents and observing the parents in life itself 
interacting with other people. So the child is just absorbing all kinds of messages verbally and then visually and experientially. Now, the main messages that we get can be divided into some general categories. The first one I would say is that we live in a dangerous world and we have to be careful that we're not safe and we're not safe from people and we're not safe from microbes or viruses or the cold or the heat or various aspects of the world around us so that we are instilled with fear. Another uh, generalization would be that we do not know, that we do not know what is best for us. We do not know what we should eat or how we should study or how we should play. Maybe eventually in life we don't even know who to choose for a spouse or kind of work to do. So we do get this message from the parents that they know better than us what we should do with our lives. The third general category is that we are not able. Um, this can take place because we're told, they tell us that we're not able, that we, they need to do things for us, or by just not allowing the child to actually work or take responsibilities or even experience the results of their choices. Another aspect, uh, which is probably one of the most important, is the message that self-worth is a conditional factor, that we are worthy of love and respect only under certain conditions. And some of those conditions are what other people think of us, how they behave towards us, the results that we have from our efforts, efforts such as grades or exams, um, our appearance, or eventually in life, how much money we have, or our professional uh, position, all these kinds of external factors which we learn to evaluate ourselves through. Very few children hear that, you know, you as an expression of the divine are worthy of love and respect, whatever you do. And I would say a fifth problem is the confusion about responsibility. We learn from our parents and teachers and society in general that we are responsible for other people's realities and that other people are responsible for our realities. When in reality, we can only be responsible for our actions and our motives. We can never be responsible for what actually occurs in the life of another person or how they interpret that and what reality they create by what is happening in their lives. And others can never actually be responsible for our reality, but only for their own actions and their motives. But we will be responsible for what we do with those stimuli and the reality that we create through that. So these are some of the major categories of beliefs from the that we get as in, as children. Sorry about that. <laughs> Fantastic. Bringing our attention to the present moment. Yeah. I wonder if you can tell us some good ways to instill in children a good sense of responsibility that they're they're responsible for their own lives and their own emotions and their reactions to events around them. 
and not to take on responsibility for other people's lives as well. Although, of course, we can help other people. It's unhealthy to think that we're responsible for other people's emotions. And that's particularly difficult for children to understand when their well-being depends so much on the positive emotions of their parents. They tend to want to take responsibility and make sure their parents are happy the younger they are. This is very true, Anthony. It's very true, and it's a very important issue. Um, I think the first thing that any parent needs to do to instill any kind of uh, quality on their children is to embody that themselves, so that the parent himself or herself would need, first of all, to get free from that confusion, from that illusion that they are responsible for the realities of others or others are responsible for them. The second thing that they can do is when uh, the child is making this misconception and feeling responsible for the parent's unhappiness or anger or um, lack of attention, that they need to communicate. I think we always come back to communication. And if they lose their temper at some point, which is very natural, especially when our energy is low or when we're fearful, or fearful for the child because we're so attached to the child being well. Afterwards, if we lose our patience and we accuse the child of being responsible for our unhappiness or for our illness uh, or for our anger, uh, just to explain to the child that, you know, this is not true. I was upset. You're not responsible. I am responsible for what I'm feeling. Uh, please don't feel responsible for my happiness or for my feeling well. And just in, in all cases, I think we come back to honesty, uh, the parent being honest with the child. And if they lose their patience, and which is very natural, just to come back to them later and say, you know, I was tired, I was upset, I was fearful, you're not responsible. Right, fantastic. So. It's always important that if we display some behavior that we consider to be unwholesome, that we have the humility to come to our children and apologize and ask them to forgive us. Very much so, very much. It's very important. So in your view and your experience, in fact, what are the correct or incorrect ways to affirm children and on the other hand, to correct their behavior if you think that is necessary? Well, I think, first of all, we need to be careful that this affirmation, any affirmation, does not make the child believe that we will love them only when they are capable or doing well or behaving as we want them. We want to separate the behavior, whether it's positive or negative, from the being of the child and instill into the child that we love them as beings regardless of whether they do what we want or don't do what we want or succeed or don't succeed. Um, so this affirmation can be an encourage, a form of encouragement for them to manifest what they really want to do in life, that what is interesting to them, what they want to uh, associate with, and every time they do well in that, affirm them in that and ask them what they want to do, what is important for them. Um, on the other hand, when their behavior is something which is disturbing for us, 
or causes us to fear for them or the, the repercussions of what they are doing from society or from, from life itself, we will need to explain what is that exactly we fear and why we consider this behavior to be an inappropriate in this condition. Now, there's what we call natural consequences. A natural consequence is allowing the child to experience the consequence of their choice. For example, if the child doesn't want to eat what we have to eat tonight, the natural consequence would not be to be punished or not be able to watch TV or be grounded. The natural consequence would be to be hungry. It is not to have something else to eat and to explain, okay, you choose this, that has that consequence. Um, if the child is choosing not to be cooperative in a way that we need them to be, a natural consequence might be that we might also not be cooperative according to their needs. So th there's a difference between natural consequences and punishment. Um, the, there's a consequence of a choice. They're making a choice. They're choosing not to do something or to do something. And we'll have to investigate what the natural consequence of that would be without degrading them, without becoming angry with them, and without needing to punish them in an irrelevant way. Now, this takes thinking. It's not easy. And even we can ask the child to participate in choosing the natural consequence when we have agreed that a certain behavior is not appropriate in a certain situation and ask them, okay, what do you think would be the natural consequence of the here in this situation? And then they begin to understand that there's a cause, there's cause and effect. I make a choice, I do that, and that has a certain result in my life. So some parents, when they think of punishment, they think of discipline, but actually a punishment is any action which is selected specifically because it's unpleasant to make the other person feel bad as a way of trying to change their behavior or deter them from doing something that we don't like. And if that's the approach we take, we're only really teaching children that if you're bigger and more powerful than someone, then if they do something that you don't like, you can do something that they don't like back to them. That's a really antisocial lesson. But, you know, as adults, if we find our friends uncooperative, you know, we ourselves might get moody. You know, if every time I ask you out to the cinema or something like that, you say, no, Anthony, you know, I've got something else on tonight. After a while, I'm going to get quite grumpy and not want to invite you to the cinema anymore. And maybe when you invite me to the theatre, I'll say, do you know what, Robert, I kind of, I'd rather um, stay at home with my girlfriend or, or, or go to the theatre with someone else. Is that um, somewhat comparable to what you're talking about, about natural consequences? Yes, yes, I think it is. And I would say that um, punishment is wanting the other person to feel pain and hopefully that this pain is going to stop them from choosing, making that choice again whereas the natural consequence is helping that person to learn through choice and action and natural consequence there's no, there's no intention of making the other person feel pain 
It's just a natural consequence of his or her actions. So there's a difference here. In the one case, we're using pain, which usually doesn't work. In the other case, we're using a learning process. If I choose A, I will get this result. If I choose B, I get another result. So it's not punishment. It's a natural consequence. Um, of course, even if punishment and pain does work, it's not really instilling any true values. It's only teaching the child not to do something because something bad will happen to them. It's not actually teaching them to be considerate of other people's feelings. Excellent, excellent. It's very true, Anthony. This is, it's that they're not doing it out of love. They're not making a choice out of love. They're making a choice out of fear. And at some point, they would, they would just react to that. So supposing that your child's behavior is causing you some distress, and I, again, I say it is causing you some distress with um, ounce of inaccuracy there because no external action causes our reaction. Yes. We respond to an event that we're in from our own beliefs and everything else we've experienced in our life. But if we're experiencing distress, or frustration around a number of actions that our children have taken. What is a good way to communicate to them the way that we're feeling and try and engender them to cooperate with us? Okay, that, that's an excellent question. The first uh, step is for us to understand ourselves. So we need to have some self-knowledge and to understand why this certain behavior is causing us to be distressed. Um, and find the specific emotions and the specific beliefs. For example, if the child is not bringing home good grades, um, one, one belief may be that, well, the child is not going to have a good future. Another belief is that I'm not a good parent. Another belief is, well, other parents are going to look down on me. And so there are some beliefs that have to do with the, the well-being of the child, and other beliefs have to do with our own self-image. Um, so what we need to do here is to clarify what emotions I have and what beliefs are creating those emotions. The next step is to explain this to the child as honestly as we can, expressing what our need is. Our need here is for the child to have better grades because we, if we have better grades, we feel safer. We are feel that you know we're doing our job for him to have the good future that we want him to have. And here, of course, is the belief that grades will have to do with success and happiness, and they may or may not have to do with success and happiness. And success in the eyes of parents or society may or may not mean happiness for a certain child. So we explain this. We explain what our need is. We explain what we feel when that need is not being fulfilled, in this case, it would be fear for the child, self-doubt, um, diminished self-worth, and various other feelings, uh, and perhaps even anger, because the child is not cooperating in the way that we want. And then after we explain what our need is, without accusing the child, taking responsibility for what we feel, and not blaming the child, for what we feel. Uh, then we explain the beliefs and then we explain to the child what we are asking from the child, what we need from the child to do. 
Then we would reverse the conversation and then ask the child what is happening. What, rather than accusing the child or demeaning the child, tell me, what are you feeling? What is preventing you from being able to, to focus, to give the time and energy? Um, are you tired? Are you confused? Is anything happening in the family which is bothering you? And now we're just interested. We're not angry. We're not upset. We're not accusing. We're just very much interested in what's happening and how we can help. And this is more productive than just punishing the child or accusing the child of, of not being worthy or not being intelligent or not applying himself or herself. So we use curiosity to open up a space where we can understand one another and hopefully create a dialogue where we can talk about potential solutions to whatever situation we find ourselves in where we don't feel like we're meeting our own needs. Yes, we use curiosity, but in order, and it's an excellent choice of words. Um, but before I can use curiosity, I have to let go of my own problem and my own fear and my own anger. So, yes, first we explain what we're feeling, and after we explain that, then we move into the curiosity about what is happening and how we can help. You mentioned fear and other emotions that we might call negative emotions. And earlier on in our interview, you mentioned that children receive messages from us and our emotional states, our view in the world and our behavior. Do you think there are some risks to experiencing excessive worry or these other emotions in the presence of your children? Definitely, definitely. The, our fears are transferred to our children, but we can't really cover them up because the child is really highly sensitive to whatever we're feeling. So the issue is not so much allowing the child to see our fear, but the issue is getting getting free from our fear. So that would even be to model uh, to the child methods for dealing with their own difficult emotions. Yes, I think that every parent needs to do some kind of self-knowledge work and learn how they can deal with their fears and overcome them. And this is a, a process of evolution and growth for the parent. And the child becomes a, a stimulus in that growth process. So, uh, yes, you really can't cover anything up from the child. The child senses whatever the parent is feeling. So if I don't want my fears and anxiety to be transferred to the child, I need to begin on working on them. Also, what I could do until I am free from my fears and anxieties is to share them verbally and explain, you know, I have this anxiety, but I am consciously aware of the fact that it really is not valid. We are okay. We are safe. It's just that this has been programmed in me. And this ability of a parent to share their own growth process that that we are safe, we are okay, there is no danger, but I have these programmings from my childhood years that cause me to feel that danger. It takes a lot of courage on the part of a parent to share that, but that will help the child separate what they are sensing from the parent from the truth, which the parent is explaining to the child. The truth is we are safe, we're okay. 
And it's also sharing a bit of our own vulnerability and increasing the intimacy of the relationship if we've got the bravery to be honest about our own shortcomings and not expect we always have to be perfect. Exactly. And this is one of the points that Eckhart Tolle discusses in his book, The The Power of Now, um, that very few children get the acknowledgement from the parent for their being. The, The parent is playing the role of the parent. It's not interacting with the child as a as an equal being, as a, a being in their own right. And so everything that they would say would be guidance or um, uh, telling them what they need to do or playing the role of the parent rather than playing the role of, a, of another human being with another human being, which the child really seeks and needs at some point. This may not happen until they're 18 or 19, but some parents can't do it even when their child is 40 and 50. Uh, so this is something we, we want to see. If I can see that other being as a separate equal being and not as a child who I need to to care for or tell what to do. Yes. So what could parents do either in the moment or in the long term, to reduce their own anxiety, fear and worry for their own benefit and for the benefit of the children in their care? Well, I'm a a fan of what we call energy psychology. Um, Simple methods that can be easily learned and easily applied to ourselves, which are very effective in reducing anxiety and fear and connecting to another alternative perception of life. Some of those are EFT, emotional freedom techniques, the BSFF, the be set free fast, the TAT, the tapas acupressure techniques, the healing code by Alex Lloyd, um, the Sedona method, uh, the Ho'oponopono, Hawaiian method. There are many methods out there today which are very easy to learn can be applied in five or 10 minutes a day. And if someone wants, like even more than 10, 15, 20, 30 minutes a day. And they considerably reduce anxiety and eventually allow us to perceive reality differently so that the anxiety is not created in the first place. So I would suggest uh, each parent just goes to uh, Google and types in energy psychology um, and they can even connect with our site, which is plenty of information about that. And the link to your site will be in the description of this video and should also be in the screen. So what one thing I noticed on your YouTube channel is you talk a lot about psychology and I was wondering what your views were on the merits of psychotherapy for parents and if there's any particular approaches to psychotherapy that you've experienced as particularly useful. I think anyone who is able to discuss what they're feeling and with the help of the psychotherapist discover the beliefs and perhaps even the childhood experiences which are creating those emotions, that's a good start. But if if the psychotherapy doesn't employ some form of energy psychology, I fear that it will just stay in at that level of just knowing why I feel what I feel. So I think that the psychotherapy is very useful just to understand what I am feeling and what the beliefs and childhood experiences are that are creating those. 
but I think the energy psychology helps them to remove that. So it's a good combination. Okay, great. What essential communication skills do you think parents should absolutely learn and pass on to their children? Well, the first skill is respect. To respect the child as a separate and equal human being. They may not be equal in experience or knowledge or responsibility yet, but they are expressions of the divine and they deserve respect and love as they are. So I would start out with respect and love uh, unconditionally. The next thing would be honesty. That is for the parent to be able to be honest about what they're feeling and what they're believing and share that with the child. The third would be being able to express our needs with the I message rather than the you message. The you message is saying, you're wrong, you're not good, you're not doing it right, um, you're to fault here, you're making me unhappy. And the I message is, you know, uh, I need this from you. I need you to help me. I need you to help me with the house. I need you to pay more attention to your grades. And I need that because I have these feelings and these beliefs. So in the you message, we're basically accusing the other. In the I message, we're taking responsibility and we're expressing our needs without accusation. Can you give us some scenarios and examples of poor and excellent ways that parents could handle specific situations that might come up with children? Well, that's pretty difficult, actually, because each parent and each child have a certain different kind of soul agreement between them. And what may work with one child may not work at all with another. Um, so I would go back to what I said earlier, respect and unconditional love, honesty in all these cases. Now, I think with each child, we're going to have to find the specific way that this child can understand and, and respond to us. And that for me is there are as many ways as there are parents and children. So I really couldn't give a, a specific means of, of, of dealing with the children. I was just wondering if there are more things that you'd care to mention that you think parents could do to really advantage their children in life. I would suggest the most important thing is being the example. For example, a parent that wants the child to be honest would have to be honest. A child, a parent that wants the child not to smoke shouldn't be smoking. A parent that wants the child to study should perhaps be studying. I mean, why? Because I'm an adult doesn't mean I don't have to learn. And if we're asking the child to read and we're watching television all night, that wouldn't be the best example. We could spend time uh, reading in front of the child or doing investigations on the Internet or even with the child doing investigations on the Internet. That is to be who I want the child to be. Um, many parents want the child to be something other than what they are. So for me, this would be the, the first uh, step in this process to to incorporate in myself what I want the child to be. Robert, I'm going to ask you if there's anything more that you're quite keen or enthusiastic to express about bringing up children that you think is essential information for people to know. 
I think I've pretty much expressed the main points that I, I feel are important. There are unconditional love and respect, uh, effective communication with the I message and not with you messages, and being the example. I would place these three things at the top of the list. Okay, fantastic. And for anyone who wants to learn more from your website, you've got a lot of articles up there and some apply directly to improving the way that you communicate with your children as well as other approaches to improve your psyche. Where can they find all your critical details? Okay, well, the site is www.armonikizui.com, but as you said, you're going to be showing it. On there, they can go to the area which is called Articles, and if they move if they move down the page, they will find an article on the needs of children and another one on more effective communication with children. The other aspects, as you mentioned, are the various uh, articles on energy psychology and self-knowledge. And there's a series of videos for free on YouTube for the self-knowledge seminar, and especially the part of the self-knowledge seminar which is called Emotional Harmony. So this is where I would suggest people go to both for their own emotional harmony and then secondly for their interaction with the children. Thanks so much for taking some time out of your busy work to connect with us so that we could put this interview up and share the mine of knowledge that you've attained over the last four decades. I hope to speak to you again. Take care now. Thank you. Okay, Anthony, I commend you on your work. Just keep up that good work that you're doing to help people. Fantastic. Okay. And you at home, until next week, be yourself. Well, don't just be yourself. Be yourself and love it.